dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. Most people want to see some positive change in our culture, but many people struggle to know exactly what this should look like. Are we struggling just for struggle's sake, or is there an end goal that we're supposed to be striving towards? In this last part of my series on cultural leadership, I wanted to give you the big picture, looking at Matthew 25, where we can understand why Jesus wants us to impact culture, namely as an act of love for him. You know, I've really enjoyed uh, having this time with you to reflect on culture and to try to go deeper in our understanding of our role as, you know, Christian leaders influencing the greater world around us. And I've enjoyed it because it touches on a lot of subjects that are kind of big and idea subjects that people like to play with. I mean, politics, international law, you know, the rule of government and the role of recycling and, you know, things that people usually like to spend a lot of their time on it. Well, for me anyway, I've loved to try to bring you back to what I think is really the essence of things, which is focusing in on your family. And it's not just me, of course, but this is the the theme of the Catholic Church in many different uh, forms of her teaching, that the fam- as the family goes, so the world will go. So if you want the world to go to a good place, focus in on your family. And then I took it even a step further, and it's something that I hold very much at heart with my work in the St. John Institute and the St. John Leadership Network, and that's that the place of work and business protects the family. And that a Christian who's engaged in business needs to exert their influence wherever they are to preserve a good working environment in in accordance with the gospel and the values of Jesus and the Bible and their faith in order to allow their co-workers and their working environment to be one that fosters health in the family. In other words, there are sometimes family situations that are just kind of broken and situations in our society that keep our families in a difficult situation. Poverty, abuse, separation, and and the cycle just continues to repeat itself. And you say, well, where can we go to cleanse the families from this type of, of negativity and help them to regain proper footing so that they can get a start and thrive? And I think there's different spots for that. Education is a spot for that, but also in the working environment. Business is just an often neglected advantage point for our society. And if we can reclaim the place of work where people spend literally one half of their waking hours, well, and we can make that place a place of respect and of development and of social collaboration and cooperation and of respect for differences and mutual enrichment. My goodness, we can do a lot of good for the workers who then go home from their work and with a mindset that's been shaped by the Christian business community. 
Now, of course, if those who own their businesses, I, I lean on you to say, listen, what, what are you doing for your workers and your workforce to make their lives more in coherence with the values of the gospel? And for those of you who don't own a company but work in a company, same idea. What you do in your workplace, influenced by faith, has a direct impact on your managers, those who are above you, those who are below you, and those who are next to you every single day. We cannot put our faith in a box. We need to take it into business. And when we do that, our companies heal a broken world. By, or they certainly can, right? Or they can at least contribute to it by healing the workers who themselves go home and can live better in their families thanks to their experience at work. And then as the family goes, the society goes. So we've, you know, kind of gone through these different themes a little bit. And, I, and hopefully I, you found this interesting. I wanted to cap it off, though, with a reflection on how Je what Jesus looks for from us in our efforts to change the culture. And I'm motivated to do this because with the rise of social media today, so many people focus all their energy on listening to what the speakers and the presenters put out on social media as their reference point for truth. And as they do this, sometimes people just forget that when you approach a social media, you approach it with someone who's trying to create a brand for themselves, almost like a politician. Just like a politician will get followers by aligning his personal message behind the needs of constituents and then win their, their, them over towards his present or her presentation of their needs. In the same way, a social media influencer will do the same thing. They'll, they'll present to you what you're interested in, what you're looking for. But by doing that, they can kind of isolate into an us and them message. And it's a fine thing to use social media. I mean, but at the same time, we have to be really aware of its limitations. The limitation is that the bigger that the influencer becomes, the more pointed their message needs to become in order to maintain their force of attraction over the people that they're trying to influence. And if we're not careful, we end up thinking that truth is polemical and that there is no, nothing that can unite. We lose our sense of nuance over ideas. Uh, the distinction between ideal and practice, for example, or the progressive gradualism, for example, that needs to be present when we're approaching people to bring them over into a, a change of behavior. I mean, concepts that you just can't relate in a 30-second soundbite on Twitter, right? And yet that's where so much of our cultural dialogue is now being held. And you can go back to that and say, oh, it's because the media got corrupted. And you can say all kinds of things that you'd like to say. But the fact is, you have to be aware that ideas are no longer being given a fair consideration. And the, the equality of their foundations and truth, or even the, the space that we need to have a healthy dialogue about things that are really complex. I'll give you an example. Like I was recently able to write a book. It's called Coached by St. Paul. And in the experience of writing, I had quite a, quite a challenge in front of me, right? Because on the one hand, you need to keep the reader's attention. You need to keep them turning those pages, right? And you also need to engage people who might have very little experience reflecting on the theological or philosophical positions that are present in my subject. 
And so you have to, you have to make, you know, very wonderfully crafted sentences that pack a punch. You have to use the correct amount of alliteration and consonants and, and, and use ideas and images that are relative to, to the reader so that the reader feels like they can enter into the subject. And yet at the same time, the, the subject itself <laughs> has so many deep points and so many things that need to be nuanced where you say it's this way, but not always this way, because you certainly don't want to take something as complex as the human spirit or the development of the human heart and then, and then make it something that seems foreign or that could even distort the reader's perception of themselves or of reality. Uh, but if you nuance it too much, you, you lack the punch that keeps the reader engaged. But if you don't nuance it enough, well, then you can actually distort the very truth you're trying to communicate, right? So you find yourself trying to ride this line as a communicator. And you re I realized that the deeper my subject went, the more nuance was needed. And nuance is just something that my, my readership is generally not used to giving to ideas. And that's the result of social media. It's a result of the breakdown of family conversations where we're no longer on the front porch having a three-hour debate about things. People have lost their ability to have steadied, long conversations uh, in general, or at least in many parts. And wherever that is in fact the case, we, we as a society or as a group of people will find ourselves presenting case points that are more and more points that are clarified by how they are differentiated from those who do not share them instead of points that are grounded in a truth that can actually unite both my viewpoint and the one I'm speaking to. And so we just have to be very aware of that. And as I've done this series here on cultural leadership, I want to make this point with you because it is have to realize that if you're imbibing a lot of social media today, you're, you're, you're going to be influenced into a way of thinking that's not healthy or helpful as a cultural leader. It's one thing to have firm convictions. It's another one to say that my convictions need to be seen as some, in some sort of battle warfare with yours. Instead of my convictions need to learn from yours as yours need to learn from mine. So the very fundamental attitude that will help our society most is a mutual listening and comprehension. But again, what, what enables a mutual listening and comprehension? an idea that there is a truth that is bigger than my understanding of it. And I agree with you. That point has been lost. It's been lost because of philosophy. It's been lost because of all kinds of segmentation in our society. But wherever the idea that there is a foundational truth that we can both know and understand has been lost, division is going to ensue. And eventually, people are just going to stop listening to ideas altogether and resort back to simple pragmatism of enjoying their lives, enjoying their workspace, and no longer thinking deeply. And as we all know, that's not going to lead us anywhere. So hopefully we can move forward there. And I'd like to continue by looking deeply with you today at the big picture. What does Jesus want for us through all of this? Why should I engage in trying to lead my culture at all if in fact it is so wrought with danger and risk. And I'm saying the reward is very great indeed. And Jesus has a high expectation for us, for us to do it in the right way. Would you like to hear more from Father Nathan? Join the St. John Leadership Network 
and receive a two-minute glance at the gospel every Sunday morning right to your phone. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org slash member and join for free today. We need to lead our culture. This is something that all of us agree with. This is something that's foundational in Christianity. I mean, from the very beginning, when St. Paul instituted his little communities of the church at the very beginning of of the church's mission, or St. Peter or the other apostles, when they went out, what would they do? Well, they would form Christians to believe in Christ. Why? So that they could live together in harmony and spread this new culture called the culture of Christianity, a culture where men and women showed respect to one another, where people listened to each other, where there was love and the love of God could abound. And then that culture took on shape in food and in dance and in music and in speech and in learning and in customs and in habits that all would shine forth with this brilliance of God's love in and through well, the very necessities of life, the way that we work together, the way, the way that we would work at all. I mean, like if you just look at the attitude that we have towards work, there's a non-Christian way of looking at work and there's a Christian way of looking at work. And the Christian way ought to be marked by a real difference. We don't just work for ourselves. We don't just work for money. We don't just work for power or self-advancement. We work for the common good, right? And there's all kinds of concepts there. And I could go through them all, but we've already kind of touched on them. I want to just remind you, though, that the transformation of the culture by the gospel is an intrinsic element for the reason the church exists. Okay, and this is, I'm taking this directly from Pope Paul VI. He wrote in 1975 that the reason the church exists is to evangelize. And then when you look at both his writing, he wrote that in a a document called The Evangelization of the Modern World, but then it was taken up again by John Paul II and all of his cries for, right, the new evangelization. They focus us in continually on this same theme, saying that evangelization always takes place in culture by transforming the culture into a place that allows for the full expression of Christian love and the presence of God in and through legal systems, in and through social customs, in and through societal structures, all this type of thing, the the right to hold private property, for example, or to advance your business. All these things need to be shaped by Jesus so that evangelization becomes complete. And in the writings of, for example, John the 23rd, you you have a, a kind of culmination of this into an understanding of how the earth needs to be brought by Christians to be opened to the mystery of the kingdom of God is as wide open as it can. It's the definition of human advancement that then, of course, was written by, by Pope Benedict XVI and when he wrote his book on truth and charity, charity and truth, and he says the same thing. Genuine social advancement in the economic, political spheres is, is an advancement that allows each human person alive to appropriate the kingdom of God as deeply and fully as possible into their own life. And the work of a Christian in society is to transform society to enable that. And so sometimes that means, of course, saying no, right? Saying no to pornography, saying no to legalization of drugs, saying no to all kinds of terrible things. And sometimes it means saying yes 
saying yes to greater collaboration, saying yes to greater initiatives to help people to be economically advanced, saying yes. But then you say, well, how do we nuance all of that? Well, that's where our intelligence needs to come in. And we need Christian leaders to assert themselves for crying out loud <laughs> and stop saying that the government can replace what you need to do. And where do we start? We start in our families. And how do we start in our families? What's next are places of work. And we go from there continually in that effort. But what's the big picture? Why does Jesus want this so badly? And I want to give you three different ways to look at it. But all of them are based on the same passage, which is Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Okay, and here he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, and now he's going to go into a whole list of things that they did. And that they did for him. And each one of these things becomes a different place of focus, a different focal point for our efforts in leading our culture. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So that, there you have the final exam question on our lives, which is really important because here Jesus is revealing at the end, you will be judged based upon what? It's based upon how we treated the least of his brothers because of whatever we did to the least of these, we did to him. And whatever we did not do to the least of these, we did not do to him. All right, so Jesus is really setting us up saying, hey, look, the big picture of your life is how you treat me. That's the very first point I want to make about this. What's the big picture? The big picture is to remember something. The end goal of everything is the Lord. To, to love and serve the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love him with all of our heart. Well, this means that when Jesus is, is focusing us here to say, hey, we all know the practicalities of life or something, you know, from doing the laundry to needing to buy a new grill to hosting Christmas parties at your house. And, but if you're, if you're not careful, you can end up losing the big picture, meaning that what am I really made for? Am I really just made to push the sand around in the sandbox of life into different configurations? You know, buying a new grill, uh, uh, mowing my lawn with a new mower, trying to figure out what we're going to do this year for Thanksgiving or the family reunion. I mean, well, the answer is no. Even though we do, we love God through those things as lay people, of course, we got to remember something. And that's that there's more to our life than just those things. There's a, an encounter of our soul with our creator, a knowledge of the heart of Jesus who loves us as we love him back with our own hearts. Jesus wants to be the center of the focus of our life. Even though we have to then do all kinds of things, buying new pianos, taking the kids to ballet lessons, investing in flowers for Valentine's Day for our spouse, all the different things that make up our yearly cycles, and yet all those different things have a point and a purpose. And who is it that claims that point and the purpose of everything that we do? 
the only one who can, Almighty God, the one for whom our soul was made and who alone can represent the real fulfillment of our life. Isn't it amazing that Jesus does that? Everything that you did for those kids changing their diapers and educating them, working with your special needs child, all of that work that you did, you did to me. Meaning, don't forget that at the heart of cultural transformation is a witness that I'm bearing to Jesus, whom I love. And that's the very first point. And, and the other two are very much like it. Would you like to start your Thursday mornings with a scriptural leadership lesson? Join the St. John Leadership Network, where Father Nathan hosts a 30-minute call at 6.30 a.m. in all four U.S. time zones. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org slash member and join for free today. When we talk about cultural transformation, in other words, we're really talking about an act of love that a Christian renders for their Lord in and through the, the mundane practices of our social living. But I, I want to really put it that way. It's an act of love. There is a, something personal, in other words, uh, involved in you taking on the position of the Cub Scout leader, right, at your church, or taking on the position of the chief usher, you know, moving people in and out of church. There's more than just me saying, well, I want to make sure things are done right. There, there, there's more, and it's the same thing with our presence on social media or the way that we drive which are all social actions and which all flow in and out of our response to the demands of Christ to evangelize. I mean, we, we need to drive safely and we need to, you know, demonstrate good use of social media and all these different things. All of that is done, though, from my heart as an act of love, as I respond to Jesus. That's what gives it value and that's what makes it make sense because now I'm not just le living for a different lifestyle. I'm promoting someone else and helping other people to know Jesus. Second thing that we need to look at, one of the big picture of social transformation, is that the focal point is on the poor. Now we say, well, why is that? Why is the focal point on the poor? Because Jesus puts himself in the position of the poor one. And he literally saying, whatever you did or did not do to the least of my brothers, you did or did not do to me. And, and what, it's beautiful, I think, to meditate on this. Because what's really happening here is that God himself is taking the position of the poor one in order to defend those who otherwise would be violated by a society bent on selfish gain. And I just got to say this. Now, I'm not talking about wealth. Wealth is, is neither here nor there. Wealth is, in fact, a very beautiful and powerful thing when used correctly. You can, you can be wealthy and you have a right to the comforts that come from your hard work and from your blessings by God. But the rights that you have to those should be put in whatever way you can and the best way you can at the service also of those who are in need. And, and that's done in a variety of different ways. I don't need to go into them here. But the point is that without the protection of God, the poor will be violated. And I'm not just talking about financially poor. That's one aspect of it. But I'm talking about anyone who's disenfranchised, anyone who's on the edge. Okay, every human being who cannot otherwise fight from themselves or represent themselves well. Let's start with the unborn, just for an example. We talk about being vulnerable. You're entirely surrendered to the this will of a society to see you born. 
Well, we owe it to the unborn to take a position that allows them to voice who they are. I mean, to allow abortion up until the day of birth is just an absolute abomination. I mean, that's not even a human way of looking at the world. That the one day you're born, now you have full rights, and one minute before your birth, you could be killed. Doesn't make any sense to anybody who has sense. And yet here we are putting that forward. Who's going to defend those rights? The rights of the elderly, of the handicapped. You can look at societies through the eras, and as you look throughout history, wherever there was not a voice to speak of the rights of those who otherwise could not be defended, their rights end up being violated, even in a systematic way. And so the church ends up by the voice of Christ. He's saying, your big picture here is to remember, on the other side of your social engagement is the defense of those who otherwise would have their rights violated. I have a big one here for this example. People don't always think about, but wherever there's pornography, there is human trafficking. And not only human trafficking, but there's a degradation of whoever it is that's the object of that pornography. You can't reduce a person into their sexual image, for example, and yet that's what pornography does. Well, we can't bear this. Well, people want it. It doesn't matter what people want. Jesus told me to defend those who otherwise are being manipulated, and we need to take a stance against this type of thing. And there's a million other things we could take stances against or stances forward, but the big picture is to remember that God defends those who otherwise are defenseless. He is the helper of the poor. He hears the cry of the poor. And the big picture for us is as we love Jesus, so we need to take a stance in order to to be his vanguard and his promotion for those who otherwise would simply suffer. And you can identify that in a global scheme with entire countries whose economies are wrecked by others. You can make all kinds of positions on this, but that's the principle that's at the heart of it. And the third and last big picture that's here is that Jesus is reminding us of our be- the beauty of our dignity as Christians to be responsible for others. And, and this is, why should I be involved in my culture? Because I belong to a culture. And that when I, and when I fill those social relationships that I have as the, the leader of my church, as the, a member of the American Legion, as being in charge of the soccer referee association, whatever it is. But if I can fill those relationships with Jesus, I allow Christ's presence to be made in a way that's not simply parochial, not simply a member of my family, not simply linked to my bloodlines or those people with whom I get along. I bear witness to Christ by bringing him into the fabric of our social structure. Extremely important. Why? Because if I don't, something else will take my place and take the place of Christ in that social fabric, and that will lead us into a culture that spirals downward instead of upward. So we Christians have this dignity given by Jesus to exercise our social responsibility by bringing Christ effectively to bear witness to others and allow them by our witness to get to know Him and the value of His structures, His way of doing things, and the beauty of the faith through the radiance of our culture. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at communications at stjohninstitute.org. That's communications at stjohninstitute.org. And visit 
www.stjohninstitute.org and sign up for our newsletter to receive updates from Father Nathan.